John 14. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles. You just get their attention and they'll get one into your hands and it will be marked to uh, the text that we're going to be studying this morning. And it's good to hear the Word, but it's also good to see it with our own eyes and so uh, get their attention. Sunday mornings we're studying the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order and uh, we find ourselves in a very, very rich section of John's Gospel here. And John 14, we'll pick things up in verse 15. Jesus speaking, and he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In the person of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, we pray this morning as we look at your Holy Spirit in this passage, as Jesus teaches us concerning him that in each one of our lives, Lord, that know you, that we would never ever be content living even half a step short of all that is ours, Lord, of the Christian life that is found in relationship with the Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would just speak to us today on that and help us to understand who he is and what he does. And Lord, we pray for each one that stands before you right now that is not yet a Christian. They haven't yet trusted in your Son for forgiveness of sin and for salvation. We pray today that something of what is said would make sense to them. They would hear your voice through it and that you would then draw them into your family. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We remember that Jesus is in an upper room, the city of Jerusalem, with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion. Some of you are saying, I'm finding myself waking up in the middle of the night saying that. You've said it for so many weeks. That might be the idea. The scene is completely dominated by a theme of separation because Jesus has just told the disciples that he's going to leave. And he's going to return to the heaven that he had come from. And the effect that this had upon the disciples was that it kind of traumatized them. It really, really disturbed them that Jesus was going to be leaving them after the kind of intimacy of relationship that they had for three and a half years. And Jesus then proceeded to reassure the disciples and us concerning his departure, number one, by telling them that he would come again and that he would take them and us into the very heaven that he had returned to himself. He told them that his work in the world wasn't going to come to an end by virtue of his departure, but that it would continue through them and that they would now continue to communicate with him through prayer. Up to now they had been communicating with him face to face, but he told them prayer is going to be just as immediate and just as effective a means of communication with me at the right hand of the Father as ever it could be if you talk with me face to face. I think that's a wonderful description of prayer. It's not like it's, we say something into the air and it takes three months to get there. And then he told them how they would be best able to express their love for him, that a love-motivated obedience to his commandments is the single greatest way that we can express our love to, them, to him. And then Jesus began to instruct them now in verse 16 concerning the person and the ministry of the Holy Spirit who he would send to them on the day of Pentecost. Now in verse 18, Jesus' statement tells us and reveals that clearly 
the disciples were feeling that they were about to become orphans as a result of Jesus' departure. And an orphan, of course, is someone who has lost both father and mother, no living parent. In the ancient world, to be left an orphan without a father or a mother was to be left in a very vulnerable condition. In fact, to be left as an orphan, a person could rightly question whether you're going to survive at all. Losing Jesus was to these disciples what losing father and mother together would be to a child. Now in that day, when a rabbi would die at the time of Jesus, his followers would oftentimes be referred to as orphans. And Jesus declares that he's not going to leave them in the way that a regular rabbi or teacher would leave him, but that because of who he was, he would then send his Holy Spirit. Jesus would send the Holy Spirit to continue the work that he had begun in the disciples and was doing through the disciples. Now John chapter 14 through 16 contains one of the most marvelous revelations of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit to be found in the whole Bible. It has the added blessing of being the very words of Jesus to his disciples on the subject of this person of the Holy Spirit. Now, for many of you in the room here this morning, much of what I'm going to say this morning is going to be familiar territory, but it still needs to be said over and over again because, as we're going to see in just a couple of minutes, it's not as familiar a subject to everyone as we might be tempted uh, to think. I want us to notice, first of all, in verses 16 and 17, that the Holy Spirit, number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. And then I want to talk about why that's important for us to understand as Christians. I think it's very vital to understand that the Holy Spirit, though a spirit, is also a person. You notice that when Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 17, First of all, he refers to him by title. He ascribes title or a name to the Holy Spirit. He calls him helper in verse 16. He calls him the spirit of truth in verse 17. And then you notice in verses 16 and 17 the repetition of the personal pronouns that Jesus uses to speak of of the Holy Spirit. He said, and I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper, title, that He, personal pronoun, may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, title, whom the world cannot receive because it neither, it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He, Him, 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 He. Always in the Bible... When the Holy Spirit is referred to, He is always referred to by either name or title or personal pronoun. He is never, not once, ever referred to as an it or a something. Always by personal pronoun or by title. Sometimes you'll hear people refer to the Holy Spirit as it, and it reflects their misunderstanding of Him. Sometimes somebody might say, it, referring to the Holy Spirit, will come into your life. And so they refer to Him as an it. He is not an it. Any more than you're an it. I don't know how flattering it would be to you if somebody referred to you in the family or friends or co-workers if every reference to you was as an it. It's a little less. We're not an it. We're a person. The Holy Spirit isn't an it. He's a person. And, and so He is not only a person, He's also the third person of the Godhead. It's important to understand, because if I don't, this One fact alone will negatively uh, affect our Christian lives. I was reading, really by accident, 
a, a recent study by the Barna Research Group, and they're kind of a Christian group that studies trends in the body of Christ. I stopped reading that stuff literally 20 years ago or 15 years ago. The information is so disheartening and so discouraging, I can hardly stand to read it. But this, this came my way in, in, uh, in, in a good way, uh, kind of quite by accident in the last week or two, and a very recent study done by Barna. And by the way, I'm not putting down the work they do. It's, a, it's really a, a flaw on, on my part. But they did a recent study, and in, in very recent, March 10, 2010, on the, the uh, subject of, uh, of the Holy Spirit with relationship to various generations or age groups among those who identified themselves as Christians. We're not talking about the world. We're talking about people who call themselves Christians. And they, were, they surveyed them, uh, probing what their attitudes were toward the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. The percentage of those who believe that the Holy Spirit is merely a symbol of God's power or a symbol of God's presence, but do not believe that He is a living entity, that is, a person, among those aged 18 to 25, 68%, over two-thirds, did not understand Him to be a person, but their understanding of Him is that He is a, a symbol of God's power or of His presence. And the age group of between 26 and 44, so you'll be, we'll all fit into this somewhere along the way here for the most part. Those aged 26 to 44, 59% declared their understanding of the Holy Spirit was not as a person or a living entity, but they understood Him to be merely a symbol of God's power and presence. Among those aged 45 to 63, 55%. Among those aged 64 and above, you would think that the percentage would drop to the floor, that they would have a far better understanding of the Holy Spirit. But the percentage in that age group was 56% did not understand Him to be a person. This tells us that there is terrible, terrible confusion out there, not just in the world, but among Christians in terms of understanding who the Holy Spirit is, much less what His ministry is and His purpose is. Over half, significantly over half, of every single age group in professing Christianity today do not understand the Holy Spirit to be a living person or living entity or a person, but merely a symbol of God's power and presence. And in that age group, 18 to 25, over two-thirds uh, are, are misunderstanding on this. Now, the good news about that younger age group, and there's a, 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 it's, you don't, we don't want to beat up on one age group because of their ignorance on it, but the good thing about that age group is they mark very, very high on their interest in the things of the Holy Spirit, their interest in spiritual gifts and the supernatural of the Christian life. So that's a good thing. It just means they want to be educated, but they're, they're not getting educated concerning the Holy Spirit. So we recognize there is great confusion concerning all of this, as though this instruction of Jesus is very, very needed. All the way through the Bible, we are told things about the Holy Spirit that can only be true of a person. They can't be true of a mere power source or an impersonal force that emanates uh, from uh, God. The Holy Spirit has marks or characteristics of personality. Sometimes we think of a person or personhood solely in physical terms. If they have hands, they have feet, they have arms, they have legs, they have a head, then that constitutes a person. And, uh, but there are other marks of personality that are not physical. Some of the marks of the personality of the Holy Spirit is He has knowledge. He has intelligence. He has the ability to impart knowledge to others. He's, no impersonal force can do that. It's a person that does that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. 
But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of Christ. The Holy Spirit has a will, the Bible teaches, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing, speaking of spiritual gifts, to each one individually as He wills. The Holy Spirit has power. He imparts power. But He is not just power. He imparts power in accordance with His will, in accordance with wisdom, in accordance with intelligence. These are all marks of personality. He has a mind. Mind is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 tells us, Now He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. An An impersonal force doesn't have a mind. That's a mark of personality. Love is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Now, I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. The Holy Spirit loves us. The Holy Spirit experiences emotion. He experiences great emotion. Forces do not experience emotions. The Bible teaches that he searches and reveals. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of Christ. The Bible declares that the Holy Spirit prays. No mere force prays. Personality. People pray. Romans chapter 8 verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He communicates. Jesus declared, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches seven times, once each to the seven churches in Revelation. The Holy Spirit is a teacher. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus said, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He leads. He guides. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For as many as are led of the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit can be lied to. This is a, you lie to people. You don't lie to forces. Acts chapter 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He can be pained. He can be hurt by us. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Impersonal forces aren't grieved. People are grieved. All of these things, and we could spend the rest of the morning going through a list like, uh, like this and speaking of the Holy Spirit. All these things are unique to a person, not an impersonal force or some kind of essence that floats around or power. Now, why is this important? The reason that this is important is if I view him as a mere force or a mere power given independent of will and personality, then my temptation will be to view him supremely as a God-given power source that I tap into and is the means by which I accomplish my will in life. And so my prayers then begin to become something like this. Lord, this is what I want to do. This is what I want in life. Now give me the power of your Holy Spirit to do this. When I see the Holy Spirit as a person 
My desire becomes, what does he think about this? What is his will in this uh, situation? What does he want to do in this situation? And how can I get in line with that? And then to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to then get in line with what he's thinking and what he's wanting to do in my life or in that situation. Second, if I view him only as an essence or a force or a power, then my focus will become how much of the Holy Spirit do I have? And there will always be that concern over how much of the Holy Spirit do I have. If I understand him to be a person who has a will for my life, who has plans for my life as a Christian, then my focus will become how much of the Holy, how much of my life is in the control of the Holy Spirit. And those are two entirely different focuses of, of a Christian life. When I realize that the Holy Spirit is a person, then I realize that to be Spirit-filled also means to be Spirit-controlled. When I understand Him to be a person, the supreme question again in my life is, how much of my life is under the control of the person of the Holy Spirit? And so the focus of my life is I need the power that He supplies to me and to us as Christians, but it, as a part of that, my focus is also on surrendering to His will and His purposes for my life in the same way that I would surrender to Christ. Now the reason that all of this is important to understand is because the Holy Spirit isn't given as a means by which I get divine power to accomplish my will in this world. That's not what the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, is given for that purpose. He is given to provide us as Christians with the help that we need in accomplishing God's will in our lives and through our lives. Which brings us to our second point. Notice in verse 16 that the word that Jesus uses to describe the Holy Spirit is the word helper in the New King James. In the Old King James, it's comforter. I don't know what it is in other translations. But the Greek word that is used for that word helper is the Greek word parakletos. That's an important Greek word, uh, one of maybe about eight or nine that every Christian ought to know. Parakletos, para, we get our word parallel from, kletos. The word means literally one who comes alongside of to help. Jesus sent the Holy Spirit into the world in order to provide us with someone who would come alongside us to help us in our Christian life. Picture the oldest little old woman you can at the corner of a of a street corner wanting to cross the street and the most gigantic, uh, you know, boy scout that you can imagine in your mind coming alongside to help her across that street. And what he is doing coming alongside to help her is what the Holy Spirit does in our lives, in our, in, in our Christian lives. What God is wanting to do in our lives and to do through uh, our lives. And so he is one who comes alongside to help or to assist, to help us do what? Notice the whole thing is set off by verse 15. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He comes alongside us to help us and to assist us in keeping Jesus' commandments as an expression of our love for Him. And that's one of the reasons for the coming of the Holy Spirit regarding the life of the Holy Spirit come alongside us in this life to give us all the help that we need to live a life that's obedient to Christ, honoring to Christ, no matter how fallen the world is or how fallen things are around me in life. It is no accident that Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit as our helper in the context of obedience. It's no accident that Jesus began talking about obedience in verse 15 and then almost immediately shifts gears to talk to these disciples about the Holy Spirit. And the reason He does it is because the Holy Spirit 
is the how behind the what of God's Word. He is the how that who provides us with the power to be able to obey Jesus' commandments. Let me tell you a, a, a true story that helps to illustrate this. And true story in my life, and some of you have heard it before, but until God gives me another true story, I keep using the best ones I have for the sake of others that uh, have started coming to the church in the last four years. Many years ago, when the church was very new, probably 23, 24 years ago, I had a friend drive over from another town uh, to meet me, just wanted to meet with me. So we went out and we had uh, breakfast together. And he was, he's a Christian, and uh, he and I were, were good friends. And over breakfast, he began to explain to me that he was having difficulty finding a church to attend in uh, his community. And I knew a little bit about his community. And so I said to him, in essence, there's a lot of churches in that town, and uh, it's, you just haven't tried enough of them yet. I mean, pretty soon you're going to walk into one, and God's Holy Spirit is going to kind of give you an amen, and you're going to have that sense that you're at home, and that's the church that y- you should be in, because God's going to pick that church out. Uh, for you. So I'm trying to be spiritual and everything and, and encourage him and, and all of that. And, but he was clearly very frustrated and he, he said, let me give you an illustration that is typical of what I'm running into in one church after another after another that is frustrating me. He said, this last Sunday I went to a church and as I was sitting there in the church during the sermon, the pastor uh, used an illustration in his sermon of a counseling appointment that he had been involved in with someone in the congregation earlier in the week. Never do that. Uh, any illustration we would use from a counseling session should be incubated for 25 years and only then see the light of day. To talk about a counseling session as an example that you have just been involved in earlier in the week, half the room in a small church understands who you're talking about. So he begins to tell a story of a young woman, probably in her late 20s, early 30s, who came in for counseling. And she told her story when she was probably in her late teens, a teenage at least, she became pregnant. And as a pregnant young person, her mother strongly uh, kind of more than encouraged her, talked her into having an abortion. In the course of the abortion, uh, she was left as a result of it sterilized, unable to have children. Now years later, she becomes a Christian. She's dealing with the guilt of her abortion. She's dealing with the regret of not being able to bear children. And now she's dealing with great bitterness toward her mother and great unforgiveness toward her mother. Well, my friend is wide-eyed, Marty Feldman-eyed in this room. He can't believe that this guy has opened up a can of worms as personal as this. And how in the world do you get all those worms back in the can? Telling a story like that. But he figures he would only tell it if the point he's wanting to make is, is big enough and important enough to tell a story like that. And so he wonders, what in the world is he going to do with this? And he didn't have to wait long. And the pastor said, do you know what I told that young lady? Everybody's at the edge of their seat. No, what did you tell that lady? That's a a very difficult circumstance that she's in. And the pastor declared, I told her that she she had to forgive her mother. And my friend said, he said, I just about jumped out of my seat with the idea of heading up there to, st- to strangle him. Now, the problem is, the pastor made no mention of forgiving her mother. At least he didn't say it to the congregation. And the power that the Holy Spirit provides, or forgiving her mother in the light of how much forgiveness God had extended to this young, in, in, to, the, uh, to this young woman, or forgiving her mother, not because she deserved it, but in order to worship God and to represent uh, God as a forgiving God who, worship, who, who forgives people that don't deserve forgiveness, which is all of us in this world. 
And I, I said to my friend, I said, well, surely he, he elaborated on and, and brought out something, you know, the reasons why the wisdom of God's forgiveness in a situation like that. And he said, no, he never mentioned anything. He said, the account that I've just shared with you is absolutely accurate. What was my friend's great frustration? Was the pastor wrong in what he said? He wasn't. He was absolutely correct as far as he went. The problem is, is that he didn't go far enough. Without mentioning the how of the Holy Spirit behind the what of God's Word, of God's commandments, he left not only that woman, but he left that whole congregation with the idea that we are to live this Christian life in our own strength, the strength of our own flesh. That God has revealed His will in this Bible and now it's up to us to roll up our sleeves and in our own strength and determination and self-discipline and ability to lift up to it as best as we can. And that's a very, very common understanding of Christianity, not just by the world, but by Christians themselves. But that kind of so-called Christianity will never produce a Christ-like Christian. All it will ever produce is very, very frustrated Christians and very, very self-condemned Christians. You remember the frustrated cry of the man trying to live the Christian life and the strength of his flesh in Romans chapter 7. His frustration is expressed in this way, Romans 7:19. He said, For the good that I will do I do not do the life I want to live the good things that I want to do I don't do those things but the evil that I don't want to do that I practice I I don't want a show of hands but has anybody ever experienced that sense of frustration in your Christian life I look at this book, it's here, it's all full of the what, and I look at the life that God describes here, the promises that are found here. It makes me smack my lips in hunger for the life that He describes here. But when I take and I try and live it in my own strength, the things I want to do, I can't do. The things that I hate myself for, those are the things that I find myself doing. Now, we all understand that on some level. The source of his frustration, how to perform what is good. Romans chapter 7 verse 18. He said, for I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. This guy knows the word. He wants what's described in this Bible. And then he says, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. And then finally, after realizing that he can't live the Christian life in his own strength, he cries out for a strength that is greater than his own. In Romans chapter 7, verse 24, he said, O wretched man that I am. And then he says it, Who, who will deliver me from this body of death and then the writer of the book of Romans goes on to write Romans chapter 8 a chapter that is absolutely jammed full of instruction concerning the person and the work of the Holy Spirit behind the what of God's word behind every commandment behind every promise Behind every encouragement is the how of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter spoke of it in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Take, take it down as a note. Everybody ought to, to study it on their own, but let me read it to you this morning. Peter wrote and he said, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's saying the Holy Spirit, God has provided us with everything that we need to attain 
to a life that looks like Christ and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now Paul says it a a little more simply when he writes to the church at at Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. He said, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of God's good pleasure. That the Holy Spirit provides each one of us as Christians with the will, with the desire to live a life that looks like Christ, but then couples with that desire the power or the ability to then do that. Christianity is not attempting to imitate Jesus in the power of my flesh. Rather, it is the impartation of the Holy Spirit. Christ-likeness never comes through imitation in the strength of the flesh. It comes through impartation of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you an example of this. Suppose we were to, uh, I was to drive to San Francisco today. It would be a lovely day. I'm on the Sausalito side of the Golden Gate Bridge. What a beautiful view of the Golden Gate Bridge. Sailboats out on the bay. The sky is blue. The wind, the sailboats out on the water. Some people are rollerblading. Some people are skateboarding. Some people are biking. Some people are walking across the bridge. Beautiful sight. And I'm riding my bike across the bridge uh, from the San Francisco side to the Sausalito side. And as I come to that side, here's a man who's got an easel out and he's got a canvas. And he's got all of his paints and a stool that he's sitting there. And he's painting the Golden Gate Bridge and all of the human activity and the boats and all of it going on in the bay. And I'm so impressed at his skill, his ability to capture this snapshot in human history and put it on the canvas, so amazed at what he's able to do, I think to myself, I'll do just the same. So I pedal down into Sausalito to an art store, and I buy a canvas as big as his. I buy an easel, the same brand as his. All of the paints and brands that he bought them, all of the same brushes. And I bring him back, and I sit next to this man as he's taking, doing the painting. And I begin to imitate him in the strength of my flesh. He mixes this blue with this yellow. I mix the blue with the yellow and I put it on to the canvas. He does this, he does that. And for two hours, I follow him on all of this. And if you were to come up two hours later and you were to look at the two paintings that were being painted, you would immediately realize we've got one painter here and we've got a poser here. Someone who doesn't know anything about painting, but only about imitating. And as I would look in frustration at the beauty of what this man could put on a canvas and think to myself, how in the world could I ever become a painter like this? It would dawn on me the only way I'll ever paint like that man is able to paint is for him to come inside of me and paint through me. And that's Christianity. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It isn't looking at Christ or a portrait or something and smacking our lips and drooling and wishing that that could happen in our lives. It is the Holy Spirit coming into our lives and producing the life of Christ in us. Would you notice finally in verse 16 that Jesus describes the Holy Spirit as another helper? Maybe you don't write in your Bible. Maybe you do. If you don't write in your Bible, you ought to write this at least in your mind and circle the word another. Jesus doesn't just say that the Holy Spirit will be a helper. He says more than that. He says that the Holy Spirit will be another helper. The Greek word that he uses here for another is an interesting one. It's the word alon, A-L-L-O-N. 
and it means another of the same kind. There's a different Greek word or a different word that Jesus could have used that was different than Alan. He could have used a word that meant uh, another of a different kind, but he doesn't do that. He used the word that means another of the same exact kind. Now, let's say my wife is at home and she has uh, baking chocolate chip cookies and they're just coming out of the oven, which is just a fabulous time to walk into a kitchen. And I come maybe from my study or something and, and I'm making my way into the living room and I want to get some work done there, or do some reading, and I walk through and I grab one of those chocolate chip cookies and I eat it as I'm sitting there. And I realize that that chocolate chip cookie hasn't satisfied me at all. It has merely primed the pump for another <laughs> chocolate chip cookie. When Karen and I were newly made, she used to make chocolate chip cookies a lot more than she does now. That, that's not neglect on her part. These, these are, uh, these are uh, health concerns for me. Not that I'm in any uh, apparent uh, danger on things. But one time when we were newly married, she, in the course of the morning, decided to make chocolate chip cookies and made a whole... Well, she made 72 of them, and I ate them as quick as they came out of the oven. I was doing work outside, so, you know, you're hungry a lot. You know, about three gallons of milk. And so we do have a problem with a sweet tooth. But I see Karen still in the kitchen, and uh, so I asked her if she wouldn't, uh, if she'd be kind enough to bring me another cookie. And so she brings me another cookie, and much to my horror, as I take it without looking at it, I discover that she has brought me another cookie for sure, but it's a ginger snap. Yes, I feel the exact pain that you felt, apparently. Now, I've come to love ginger snaps, too. I'm no uh, respecter of persons on these things. Whatever's in the cupboard will do fine, actually. But they really, in general, don't compare to a chocolate chip cookie. If I had asked for uh, Alon, another of the same kind, then that ginger snap would have never been brought into my presence she would have brought another chocolate chip cookie just like the first one. And when Jesus declares to the disciples that he's going to give them another helper, he's telling them that he's going to send another, a helper just like the first one. And who was the first one? Jesus was the first helper. Jesus was very handy to have around for the disciples. There was no circumstance, no situation, no need for wisdom or power or whatever it might be that he wasn't up to in terms of meeting that need. Everything that Jesus was to the disciples for those three and a half years, so the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, will be to us in our lives. He will be sufficient for every situation we ever face. The same help that Jesus was to the disciples for three and a half years, the Holy Spirit will be to us. When Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will be another helper, one who is exactly like the first one, that tells me another thing. And what that tells me is that the Holy Spirit is absolutely safe. He will never ask us to do anything that doesn't look like Christ. He will never be in our lives anything that does not absolutely look like Christ. Sometimes in some Christian, the Christians, depending on where their background is in, in the body of Christ, there's a little anxiety related to the Holy Spirit. What will happen to me if I yield myself to the Holy Spirit? I submit myself to Him. He comes into my life and I say to the Holy Spirit, do whatever you want to do with my life. They have the impression that He's kind of the iffy, uh, squirrely, unstable part of the Godhead. And you never know quite what that Holy Ghost is going to do. And when Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to be exactly like me. It allows everyone to take a deep breath and realize I am as safe in submitting myself to and obeying the Holy Spirit as I ever would be in submitting to Jesus and obeying Him. And that's 
a big thing for people to understand for an openness to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. One of my favorite names for the Holy Spirit in all of the Bible. I think it is my favorite name for the Holy Spirit. There in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, He's referred to as the Spirit of Christ. When I started coming to Calvary Chapel of Napa 30 years ago or so, came from a background where, you know, we weren't, I wasn't that comfortable with everything related to the Holy Spirit. He produced a little anxiety for me on things. And this verse here, John 14, 16, where Jesus describes him as another helper, and where the Holy Spirit describes himself in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, as the Spirit of Christ, that put me completely at ease related to the Holy Spirit. As Christians, the Lord has not left us as orphans in this fallen world. He has left us in the very good hands of the Helper, of the Holy Spirit. There's so much to say about the Holy Spirit, even within Jesus' teaching on the night before the cross. And we'll get to some of that in the coming weeks. But sufficient for this this morning, and it's enough to really radicalize a Christian life if they've never heard it before. And it's always a good reminder. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit provides us with a how to live the Christian life that we see described in the pages of Scripture. And the work of the Holy Spirit in Christian's life will always look like what Jesus would do in the same circumstance. Christianity is intended to be supernatural. The Christian life in this world should be, I'm not rebuking, I'm informing. The Christian life should be the most supernatural thing anybody sees day in and day out on the face of this planet. We should never, ever come to a place in our lives where we can look and not only should we never look at the Scriptures and say, this is what it says and I'm going to you know, live it to, to the limit of my severe limitations of being able to do this in my own strength. I've lost my thought. But I'll get it back because this is a big point for me this morning. One of the things that I pray for on a weekly basis, several times through the week, almost every day in fact, I pray for the staff and I pray for you and I pray for this church. I do that every day, but I don't pray this every single day, but most days. And this church and the name that it has in the community is a place to maybe come and meet with God. And I say, Lord, help us and help this church and what people encounter here in this place that it can never, ever be explained by the cumulative talents and abilities of the people that work here and serve here and attend here. Because if people can explain this church on the basis of our human limitations, then there is nothing for Him to get glory over. There is nothing that makes people stop and say, what in the world is that life all about? And concerning our lives individually, we must, and it is a tendency as we grow, walk longer with the Lord, the tendency to settle down into a Christian life that is no longer marked by the supernatural or even an openness to the supernatural. 
where we can reach a place where early in our Christian lives we wanted to make a difference, we wanted God to be seen, we would exercise spiritual gifts, His calling meant something to us, and then now years and decades can go by and we can sit and everything about our Christian life can be completely explained by our own determination, our own talent, our own ability, our own self-discipline, and there's nothing supernatural about the life anymore. I don't say it's true of you. I say it's a tendency in all of us. This Christian life must never cease to be supernatural. As fully supernatural as God wants it to be. It, again, it should be the most... Sup- the body of Christ should just be mind-blowing for the world in the realm of the supernatural. You know, one of the things, and this is more data that's disturbing, but this is helpful to understand. When they talk about young people who are raised in church, not a particular church, but church in general, the United States of America, and so many walk away from the Lord when they go into college or they get their first two jobs or whatever it is, is and a lot of it's just they're getting, hitting with temptations for the first time. They're settling the issue of Jesus' lordship in their life at that particular point in time where their life is no longer an extension of their parents, but now it is becoming theirs. There's a lot of dynamics in it. But a significant reason why people who have been raised in a Christian church and with a Christian background get sucked into cults and non-Christian religions and you just go, what in the world are they thinking about? How in the world could they do that in the light of their background is that they go into these new age things or these other kind of of, uh, religious systems And they experience the supernatural. And they're hungry for the supernatural. And God has the supernatural for them and for us. But if they are raised in a church, not rebuking anyone, I'm not talking about us specifically, but if they are raised in a church where they do not see the supernatural in the Christians around them. If they haven't experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in their own life, never been led by the Spirit, never had the Lord speak to them to do something and then watch the Lord honor it, a person that comes from that kind of a background where that is the norm of the Christian life, they go out into some other meeting when they're 22 years old and they get exposed to some kind of something being done in the, in, by a demonic spirit and they look at it and they shrug their shoulders and say to themselves and to anyone that would listen to them, if you think I'm going to be pulled into that just because the devil can do some kind of a power thing, I've been raised around the power of God all my life. And it inoculates them from being seduced in that way. God help us as Christians that we never settle for a Christian life that anyone could just look and say, that's just Him. It's who He's always been, but He's just on His, except that He's just on His way to heaven. But where they would look at our lives and say, there's no explanation there except that Christ is living inside of them. That's the life that God has for us. And that's why He sends another helper into the world. Let's pray together as we close.